Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Stephanie Samuels, who is a psychotherapist who works exclusively with police officers. Ms. Samuels has lectured all over the country on PTSD and vicarious trauma, including undiagnosed PTSD. Uh, she also is the founder of Copline. It's a it's a, a helpline for police officers to call in when they are in distress, when they are on the cusp of wanting to end their lives. Anything mental health related, uh, they can go to Copline and have another officer or some type of mental health therapist uh, answer their call and sit with them as they're going through it. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie Samuels. Thank you so much uh, for having me on. I'm really excited uh, to be on the program. I'm excited to be on here. You and I, we had a nice little phone conversation about CTE, uh, uh, brain injuries in athletes, but, but specifically in police officers and the link to suicidality. And one of the surprising stats you shared with me was that more police officers die from suicide than they do from homicide. Please tell me more about that. So, you know, I, I think that 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 most people just kind of look at officers as as that uniform and kind of that detachment, and they only get to see what's on social media, and they really don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what they take home with them um, and the stressors from. Uh, from not only just being on the job, but but typically what drives an officer to um, to become an officer, um, and some of their own unresolved stuff on those lines or on the um, um, in their lives. So um, so when you know all of us, we we're kind of the sum total of all of our experiences. So as we go through life, as we don't empty our our luggage, we continue to carry around these you know enormous bags that get heavier and heavier. And on the job, these officers are exposed to critical incidents, you know, exponentially as compared to, you know, those those in the general public, you know, when, when something horrible happens in our worlds, we can't believe it happens. And then the law enforcement world, you know, they just wait for when it's going to happen. They anticipate that it that it will, because that's their experience. And that's not a healthy, um, healthy way to live life. So um, you know, so the baggage continues to to get heavy and heavier, and there really is such a tremendous stigma of an officer seeking um, any type of mental health. All officers have to pass a psychological fitness for duty before they can come on the job. Many of them are really concerned that if they did go into treatment prior to the time that they are on the job, that there that it would be an exclusion which is, you know, those that actually do fitness for duty tests kind of love when they have been in therapy because they get to talk to the therapist um, that saw them and they realize that they have used healthy coping mechanisms to resolve issues. It just makes total sense. Um, except, you know, officers are so afraid that the opposite is going to happen, that, that, that somebody that's doing fitness for duty is going to say, oh, there's already something wrong with them. And so, um, so we're going to exclude them. And that, that kind of continues on. And then once they get the job, the fear that they're going to go see a clinician that doesn't deal with law enforcement and that, you know, the clinician is going to be concerned because obviously they, they have a firearm. They're very comfortable with firearms, you know, and oh my God, you know, if they have a firearm, they're going to use it. Not true. Um, although their lethality with the firearm is extremely statistically high. But being able to have a safe environment to be able to talk about the stressors, being able to talk about the level of helplessness, being able to talk about what it's like to get off of a shift and to go home and to try and reconnect and to try and um, and and protect your your family from kind of the the world that's out there while you're struggling yourself internally because you need to be able to talk about this and you need to be able to feel this this pain and you know at times it becomes absolutely overwhelming for them so so 
statistically speaking, more officers do die by their own hands than die in the line of duty. And that's um, there's been a huge push to try and decrease that. But we think that there's this other factor. And that's what you and I you know, began to talk about, which is kind of really, um, really exciting. And it's exciting in the sense that I think most of us, all of us, want to figure out how to prevent suicide. It's what we do. It's why you do the show. It's 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 what has driven me throughout my career. Copline is, you know, was created uh, to deal with kind of the low hanging fruit, the you know, the bad day, as well as that full blown mental health crisis. And it's actually we don't have counselors that answer the line. It is only retired vetted officers. Um, that are answering those lines. And the reason why they're retired is we had to make sure that if an officer talks about something like suicide, that there's no mandate that they have to that they have to breach confidentiality on the lines. So if the officer is so if it's if the person's homicidal, if the person is engaged in child abuse or elder abuse, absolutely that we're going to do everything we can to breach that call into um and to bring justice as far as you know, handing it off to the authorities or what have you. But a person should be allowed to talk about suicide. A person should be allowed to talk about the worst day of their life and wanting to end it without having to worry about it costing them their career. So Copline was set up to be able to do that. And it's, it's just, we've really enjoyed watching it grow and um, and the relationships that have formed amongst the volunteers themselves. And I think even more importantly, with the caller that feels safe enough to be able to emote on a phone and know that there are no repercussions to that. But the question is, why have we been working so hard on suicide prevention, all of us? And, and we're, the frustration we have in in not always seeing the numbers go down. So what could potentially be this other piece? And so the NFL years ago, kind of you know, started looking at the amount of concussions that, that their players had. So, and I am, and I wanna make this really clear, I am not a medical doctor, I am not a neuropsychologist, that the brain was one of those things that I went, oh crap, this is like beyond me when I went to school. Like if it was math and science, I was staying away from it. So it's just wild that at this stage of my life, I'm looking at, at this, this connection, but I look at it very much as a clinician and a lay person, which I think makes me able to talk about it because I talk about it from that perspective. Because once you get into neurons and axons, I'm lost, I'm gone, like you lost me. But when I talk about it and it actually makes sense, it's like, holy shit, here it is. So what we know about, about NFL players and that we watched and, you know, that you went back to Bennett Amalu, who was, you know, the first individual who with the Pittsburgh Steelers had worked in the ME's office and, um, and patient zero was Mike Webster, who was brought in who had, um, he actually had not died by suicide. He had died, I think of a cardiac uh, scenario, but he was in his fifties. He looked like uh, if he's 50 or early fifties, he looked like he was in his seventies. Um, and, and Dr. Molly was looking at this saying, just, this doesn't make sense. And they anticipated from his, from the behavioral dysregulation that Mike Webster had been well-documented was living in his car, was pulling out his teeth, was tasing himself to sleep, was just at losing his mind and knew he was losing his mind, which is um, which is kind of uh, different than, than people with Alzheimer's because they don't always know that. But he was acutely aware that something was wrong, but MRIs were not showing anything wrong with the brain. Like all of the tests that we have showed nothing. So when Dr. Amalu looked at the brain and, and you know, he saw an absolutely crazy intact brain and said, what are we missing? <clears throat> and then ended up doing, you know, the, this, the, the pathology that then showed this tau protein in this part of the brain <clears throat> that it hadn't been seen in. They see the tau protein in Alzheimer's 
but they hadn't seen it in this part of the brain and hence was born chronic traumatic encephalopathy. They needed to call it something known now as CTE, which the research that has been done by Dr. Cantu, Dr. Dansavar, <clears throat> over the past 15 years and a whole myriad of other um, researchers <clears throat> have found that what causes CTE is repetitive head impacts, not concussions and TBIs. So that you can just kind of rattle your brain, have zero symptoms, but depending on the repetitive amounts and the G-force hits that your brain is keeping score, that over and over and over and over, you've got You've got injuries that are being sustained that cannot be seen on any type of imaging that we have. But we see symptoms. We see behavioral changes. We see cognitive changes. We see mood changes. So when you're Stephanie Samuels and you've been working with cops for 35 plus years and you, you take their history I take, you know, I, I take a pretty extensive psychological history. The profile of a cop is this. Somebody who's grown up in crisis, does well in crisis, doesn't know how to live without crisis, issues with a, with a father figure or significant loss early in life, history of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, or neglect. So it makes for a great cop. It makes for a difficult home life. But what we never looked at was this other piece of have these individuals played contact sports growing up? Have my patients, I get the abuse history from childhood. And when I hear about the, the, the violent homes that they grew up in, I haven't been keeping track of the head injuries. I haven't been, been keeping track of how many times even if they weren't smacked in the head by a parent or what have you, how many times were they shaken so violently? And what do we know? We know that the, the brain is being stopped by a skull. It's, it's not that it's not having micro bleeds. We just will never see them. But this happens over and over. Now we go ahead and these are, these are typically you know, men and women that have been active in sports. So, you know, they've played, they've played football from the time that they were, you know, five years old in peewee. And they've gone up through, through their high school. Many of them have gone into college. Many of them went into military. And all of this time, they are sustaining either non-concussive hits or concussive hits. And so, you know, and then after a concussion, you know, I always tease, you know, everybody, because when you're you're my age and you grew up, you know, my parents were like, you know, I saw stars, you know, I hit my head or whatever else. And they're just they're like, shake it off. We are literally a, a, an adult population of people that have been shaking off concussions since we've been kids. So, you know, so I shook them off. But but these guys have been shaking them off forever. You know, and we watched it in football, you know, completely dazed and and. And a loss of consciousness on a concussion is not just they're knocked out. It's that they, they are completely disoriented. They don't know where they are. They repeat the same thing. That is a loss of consciousness. Most people are like, no, I've never been knocked out. Well, have you ever, you know, not known where you are? Have you ever lost track of time? That kind of stuff is also a loss of consciousness. So, you know, when we start getting into all of that, and we understand that the NFL has now said, after three concussions, you're done. We need to start talking about retirement. So now you go into law enforcement. And, and they've had the history of contact sports. Many of them have been in the military. Many of them have been pre breachers. Many of them have done the explosives. They've had... They've had um, some pretty exciting adrenaline-filled careers because that's what they love. And then you mix that with a good dose of PTSD, which is numbing of general responsiveness is, is one of those pieces, so that it takes more and more adrenaline 
for you to feel, which then is a higher amount of at-risk behavior, a frontal lobe that isn't functioning well, and executive functioning and decision-making isn't great. (laughs) And we've got the impulsiveness without the ability to think long-term. This becomes this perfect storm. But in my lane, I had only been looking at the piece of this that says, okay, well, you're involved in all these incidents. One shouldn't, you know, there is no officer that that ever, although they knew that they could use deadly force, there's no officer that ever understood what that would psychologically do to them, period. You know, as I always say, you know, there are 10 commandments. I can probably tell you the top three. I, I know thou shalt not kill everybody knows. I'm not supposed to screw my neighbor's wife. I know that one. You know, I'm not supposed to lie, but I, you know, it gets a little wonky after like three. But thou shalt not kill. Everybody knows. No matter what type of um, of spirituality, religion, or what have you that an officer has, even if they're not religious or spiritual, that is still there. We're not supposed to take a life. They're supposed to save lives. It's why they took this job. So so when I'm assessing and and I'm going through this and I'm seeing that behavior changed after this, um, they become uh, more withdrawn. There's a whole lot that goes along with being involved in critical incidents. There's an appropriate amount of time that um, that we should see some type of um, of processing and resolution that goes on. But when they really got stuck, I didn't evaluate for the comorbidity of a head injury. And that's now what we're looking at. And when we now are looking at suicide, here's the question, how many of our officers that have died by suicide had a history of head injuries before the critical incident as well as after? Because we did a pilot study out in um, in Texas And what we found was that of the officers that completed the survey, and it was was a low percentage because the hypervigilance is high, there's always a concern as what's gonna happen with the surveys, is of the officers that had been diagnosed with PTSD that um, by mental health professional, that over 84, I think it was 87% of them had sustained five or more concussions. Again, NFL, three or more. They talk about retirement. However, 50% had sustained 15 or more concussions. So we're looking at this and we're saying, holy crap, this has got to play out. So on January 6th, after the riots, there is a metropolitan police officer that had gone in Mutual aid was obviously called. So a metro officer went in. Um, Same as Jeff Smith. Jeff went in and we know that at the Capitol that um, that uh, flashbangs were used, um, which are um, which are really what is known as concussion grenades. It disorients people, which is what it's supposed to do or what have you. And so we know that he was inside the Capitol when several um, flashbangs were were used. We also know from his body camera that while he was inside the um, the Capitol, there was an incident where he had a loss of consciousness. When he got out of the Capitol, we see on his body cam him being hit by a metal pole that comes in and it's a solid square hit to the head. What we also know about concussions is that factor multiple becomes your worst case scenario so that your brain doesn't heal that you don't have any time to rest, which is why this concussion protocol exists, is because we need the brain to be able to rest. We need for it to heal, right? The old adage, you know, if if you fall off a horse and you break your leg, you get right back on the horse. No, no, no. You have your leg that mends and then you get back on the horse. You can't get back on the horse with a broken damn leg. So, um, so when when he came home, his wife talks about, how and he went through the standard protocol at the time, went to whatever healthcare it was or whatever. Um, and he 
and he goes home and his wife talks about these behavioral changes that he had starting literally 24 hours later. And, you know, and people are attributing it to what he experienced in, in the Capitol. They are only attributing it to the psychological component there. He goes back, so post-traumatic stress disorder cannot be diagnosed for 30 days. That's the criteria for PTSD. So you have to have these symptoms for 30 days. We know that on the ninth, um, or that's, uh, that on the sixth was the, uh, was the riots. And on January 15th, we know that Jeff was returned to work and on his way to work, he shot himself. So when you look at that and people are then saying, oh, it's because of PTSD, when you're me and you've been doing PTSD for what feels like my entire life, certainly my, my adult um, uh, clinical life, he didn't meet the criteria. However, they did find on an autopsy that he had a skull fracture. So we know that, that the level that he sustained of that brain injury was significant. That wouldn't necessarily be CTE. He hadn't had the repetitive head impacts throughout childhood. He didn't play contact sports. But we do know that that mood dysregulation, we know the impulsivity, we know the anxiety, we know depression, all of that is also from head injuries. That overlap is insane. And until we start looking at this together, all of us, whether you're a clinician or you, Leo, that's doing this amazing podcast, what wonderful questions is to now look at something and then to be able to get them help not just talking to somebody, but potentially neurological help with, with vestibular, with balance issues, with eye issues, the ocular pieces, with cognitive, all of those things will help save lives. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely want to do a, a deeper dive on head injuries, because I think a lot of times when we think about head injuries, we think about it just in a, in a context of uh, contact sports or uh, a car accident, and and so please correct me if um if uh, if I'm a, if I've expanded too far on what can possibly lead to a brain injury, but I would assume fights, right? If you're when you're young, you're getting into fights, the blows to the head, where there's punches and then falling down to the ground, accidents, abuse from your parents, whether they're shaking you or punching you. Um, and then there's also in your, say it again, strangulation, strangulation, right? Because you're cutting off, cutting oxygen, off the, to the, the oxygen to the brain. So I would assume there it might even be looking at in utero brain injury from the drugs and alcohol or whatever that's being ingested and fed through the fallopian tube. So we're getting some injury there and, and then drug abuse on the part of the, uh, of the officer or the person that may be exacerbating the brain injury because now we are keeping the brain inflamed and, and never allowing it to uh, recover and repair. So there's also been this question of kind of which came first, the chicken or the egg, because what we know is that um, people with head injuries seem to be, I want to say it's 30 times more likely to have a substance abuse issue. So, you know, what is it? And, and they don't have the answer. What is it about the head injury that makes it? Because it's not just the substance abuse. It is a grip on that individual with substance that is a vice that just is so difficult to be able to, to remove. So we don't know what's going on. You know, did something chemically change, you know, in the brain? What is it that's going on? We also know that people that use that use substances more or are more prone to accidents, which then leads to head injuries. So you've got, you know, so there's all these things, you know, particularly, you know, driving. You know, a lot of times if you know if somebody taps you, the rear end accident, you know, brain first hits the back of your head, then the front. 
But, you know, as long as you feel like you're okay, but you don't realize that you still, that there's still a possibility that we know that your brain was rattled. And if you've got a long history of these prior incidents, we never know when the brain goes, it's enough. It's enough. This is the one that did it. The thing that stood out from our conversation too is you said, you know, psychology is great going to see a psychologist or a therapist or calling the cop line. But for a lot of individuals, especially if they have some type of brain injury or may suspect it, seeing a neurologist. And, and I know earlier you talked about, uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, getting your, the ocular, I don't remember what the word was, but you know, vestibular and ocular. Can you talk to us about what would be the team of treatment from vestibular to neurologist to having someone look at your eyes that, uh, you would be like, let's, if we, if you had, unlimited resources to throw at somebody the dream team i i refer to it as like the dream team so dream team looks like this dream team is any of the the arteries are are um are used so whichever avenue you come in the dream team remains the same so that um so if so it's going to be me. So they come in, they see me. I take this history. They're struggling with sleep. They're struggling with um, with communication. They're struggling with um, impulse control. They are quick tempered. They go from zero to a hundred. Anything can set them off. And I've got the the history of um, of a traumatic event, so that I I now am thinking, aha. Uh-huh, you know, these are all these are all symptoms of PTSD. My criteria is met, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're reliving the incident. I've got all the criteria that I need. However, now I'm going to talk about head injuries with them. I'm going to talk, I'm going to go back into their childhood. I'm now going to spend probably an hour on an intake. Um, because it is, it's really lengthy um and, and a little intrusive, I have to, you know, I have to admit, you know, we're going over some really uncomfortable things. You know, and stuff they didn't even think about. Like I had an officer talk about when he was six years old, his parents were in a car accident. I mean, he hadn't thought about this in like, you know, 40 years. His his parents were in a car accident. He was in the back seat. And his parents were taken to the hospital. He went to school, except he threw up in school. And then he ended up going to the hospital. But like still, this, like he didn't even think anything of it. He never got help. They basically said, you know, just watch him, blah, blah, blah. But they never looked at whether or not he had any other further issues. So there's this really kind of simple um, way of of seeing whether or not you might have something going on with your eyes. So cops are great. Uh, cops, you know, do field sobriety tests, and so they look for you know they'll say you know follow my finger, and so they're looking for the nystagmus. They're looking for the bouncing of the eyes. Which, by the way, I have no clue how to do. So I suck at I suck at that one. So I will not be the person that's doing the nystagmus. But but the cops always do that on each other when they've been drinking. And I'm like, well, guess what, guys? Do it when you're not drinking, because the truth is that people with head injuries that are having issues that they have issues with nystagmus. So when you have somebody who's driving and officers. Um, are are being trained the drug recognition experts that each department has um DREs they are trained and one of the the individuals that helps them train is this lovely woman named um Michelle Sapper who was hit by a drunk driver when she was um in college and sustained an unbelievable brain injury but if you pulled her over she's going to have problems with speech She's going to slur and an officer is going to believe that she is drunk. And then they're going to do a field sobriety test on her, which she's going to fail. And, and although she will blow zeros, it has to do with, with the head injury. So, so she actually helps train these officers out in Los Angeles in the Los Angeles area to be able to recognize and differentiate um, and help them be able to ask the right questions and what have you for um, for dealing with somebody with a head injury. 
So with the officers, that's one of the things that I that I have them do um, is is to look at that. The other thing is to take your your um, is it pointer finger and um, and you start off with a straight arm and you bring it towards your nose and you see where it splits to two. And it should be, I think, about five centimeters from um, from the bridge between your eyes. Most of my patients are between eight and 12 inches from their nose, which says that there's something going on with their eyes. So that's the ocular part of, of, a, of this, this dream team is to be able then to then send them for ocular therapy. They have prism glasses. There's all sorts of stuff that they have. And I think the most important thing is to realize that there are, there are treatments for pretty much everything that we can see. CTE cannot be diagnosed in the living. It cannot be. They work off of symptoms. They work off of that history. So we can, there, there's a, a working theory and presumption, but it's never going to be confirmed until death. But what we know is we have to deal with symptoms because they're interfering in, in how people are living. So being able to close one's eyes and, and whether or not they have balance, you know, that becomes the vestibular piece of it. Um, and, and again, you know, you're not drunk, but, but what's going on because your brain's struggling, you know, and so often we, you know, our, our, our bodies and our brains are amazing because we can overcompensate for so much. And then we just, you know, so, so we learn, we learn to adapt. So, so my guy who was, um, who was six in that major accident played football most of his, most of his life. Um, and just sustained injury after injury, you know, very active and a very active police officer, many, many fights, motor vehicle accidents, some, you know, some worse than others. But the interesting factor is that at no point in time, even on the job, did they take care of him with his head. So his last injury, which is the one that really um, threw me was he had a loss of consciousness is that he was um he was going over a fence he was going after a bad guy he was pulled down and he was he was slammed onto the uh, the concrete so goes to the hospital they'll do the immediate um cat scan to make sure you don't have a brain bleed but they don't bring you back 72 hours to check an mri because it costs money and so that's not standard unless you're having issues or what have you. Well, how do you know if you're having issues? Well, he's not going to say he's having issues. <laughs> now, that could cost him his career. So he's going to continue to adapt. But when, when I ask him to turn his head quickly and he gets dizzy, it's an issue. And so, you know, he ended up going for an MRI and they actually ended up finding a small tumor. Um, in uh, by his by his ear, so there's multiple factors on this one, but it, but not understanding the importance of of this. So my dream team is the is the neuropsychologist who I also want to work with that that can now do a battery of tests to tell me cognitively how my patient's doing. What are some of the memory deficits potentially that are going on with him or her? Um, what's their processing speed? Because that's not in my wheelhouse. So, so now I've got, so I've got my assessment. Now I've got my dream team neuropsych assessment. And now I'm going to figure out from that neuropsych because if anything's coming up, I'm now sending them to a neurologist. And so the neurologist is now going to look at these different pieces and he's going to head up my medical show. He's my doctor that's going to say, okay, here's some of the tests that I want. So we've got one of my patients who is young, is in his early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. 
who is showing signs of early Alzheimer's. He is a poor historian, as most people that have had head injuries are. They don't remember a whole lot. He remembers one loss of consciousness. He was in the hospital for days. But when I tell you nothing before that, nothing afterwards, his gait is affected. His speech is affected. And and so he had the neuropsych. He's got the neurologist and the neurologist. He is doing everything. He's not finding what he's looking for. And yet we know that we're losing him and we can't figure out why. So one of the next things is going to be um, a lumbar puncture, looking for um, for other pieces. And again, that's a whole neurological doctor component of this. And for me, it's dealing with somebody who doesn't see that there's an issue, doesn't see his decompensation. And week after week, there are times where he's slurring his words that I don't understand and that he's getting frustrated because in his mind, he's not slurring. It's then dealing with his wife to say, you know, hey, are you noticing stuff and her fear of what's going on as well? Go ahead. So when we're talking about this dream team, I hear you talking about, you know, seeing you to to get like a full history and assessment or a a psychologist or someone who's going to take a full history of you. And then we're talking about, going to someone uh to get an ocular test a vestibular test uh a neurologist a neuropsychologist is there anyone else on that dream team because i know that we also talked about you know helping them uh manage their behaviors and their moods so i and that's only if they come in through through my artery they can come in through a neurologist so they can come in because they're having problems uh, visual problems or what have you and and that neurologist might go ahead and the neurologist will then refer if they're having visual problems to probably a ocular therapist, if they're having balance problems to the vestibular, because that's not necessarily the type of therapist they're going to need. So, so dream team is typically neuropsych, potentially um, neurologist and shrink and shrink only being at that point for me, it's. I need to refer them to the others. So you bring up a good point. So the dream team, it consists of, of certainly a neurologist, certainly some type of therapist um, and a good workup that can now help set up this, um, this treatment plan, this very thorough treatment plan. So now you've got the behaviors. And so now you've got the impulse control. So, so that's where I come in. So that's how that, that artery would, would either circle back to me, or if they came in through a neurologist or neuropsych, they're still going to find a therapist that can deal with the behavioral components, the impulse control, the, um, the anger and a medical doctor, because some of the stuff, and, and we touched on this too, is that psychiatrists don't do a good job asking either about head injuries. And so they're gonna prescribe meds based on the behavior, except what happens if the behavior is being driven due to a brain injury? So so my guys, all of them seem to have memory issues, okay? So they've been involved in traumatic events, Again, part of the criteria with PTSD is difficulty concentrating, um, difficulty with memory. However, head injury is the same thing. So what happens if I get this history and the history is showing they've played contact sports, whether it be soccer, whether it be football, whether it be wrestling. So we know that there's going to be repetitive head um, impacts, that they grew up in a violent home, they grew up in violent areas, that they had sustained concussions, blah, blah, blah. So now I've got all these pieces. And if I've only looked at this through the lens of a therapist, or if I'm a psychiatrist, I'm still just hearing that, but I'm not asking about all this other potential brain stuff. I'm attributing the memory issues to PTSD. I'm attributing it to strictly a mental health issue. Well, now if memory 
memory could now be related to this tau protein. So again, Alzheimer's is that same tau. So what do we know? We know that those memory drugs, Aricept and some of the others, is what is used to slow down the progression of dementia. So what I don't want is I don't want to do harm or disservice to my patient. I need to make sure that I've gotten them the best workups and that they're on the right meds. Because if they're going to be on meds for PTSD, none of them are going to stop that tau protein because they're not on meds to do that. That impulsivity, you know, that's a different type of med as well. Seroquel is one of the ones that's been used um, for, for, for mood dysregulation. Seroquel in really high in higher doses is an antipsychotic, which is what you find. Lower doses is really for that impulse control stuff. It also helps with sleep. So it really accomplishes two things. Not your standard drug, not a crazy drug, by the way, that won't be used by psychiatrists for PTSD, but not our first line that that gets used. So really understanding that history. Because if we can control the impulsivity, if we can understand what's going on and we can help a brain heal and we can talk about some of the other issues going on, well, damn it, we should be able to impact suicide. Let me ask you this. Earlier, you talked about that transition that officers have from going from work to home. And how difficult that can be because um, they, like you said, a part of them are built for crisis. Mm -hmm. they, they're, they're used to the adrenaline. And so to go from this adrenaline filled world to now this quiet, uh, you know, dinner with the family, helping with homework kind of thing uh, that I would imagine that change that juxtaposition bright lights loud sirens uh a bunch of people in the uh precinct to the, the silence of home how do you suggest officers navigate that transition should they come straight home it, you know stereotypically they go straight to the bar i was gonna say they sure as hell should not stop at the bar <laughs> Because then they're going to be giving up half of their income <laughs> for the divorce and, uh, and and being a weekend dad every other weekend. So no, I, I don't I don't recommend that highly. Um, but it, it is a good question. I'll tell you, it really was a disaster during COVID um, because the kids were home; they were being homeschooled. You know, the, the everybody was that was really a, a, a struggle. So I. I I think one of the biggest factors is this is where spouses and significant others come into play. This is where communication and not just talking, but, but really listening to what the person needs absolutely comes into play. So I know for me, because I live close to my office, that when I was commuting into Manhattan, by the time I got home, I was in much better shape. I had taken that hour. I had kind of decompressed. I was, by the time I got home, I was in a place where I could deal with stuff. So I'm also going to tell you one of the things that, um, that officers lose, and certainly I have too, is my ability to do small talk and, um, and that kind of that, that appropriate social graces. Um, I am not one that you want to, to take and do that. Like the running joke is for cop line, you'll never see me at any conference like manning a booth because I, it is a disaster. My mouth is just a disaster. So everybody's like, yeah, no, where's the director? Like oh, we keep her like <laughs> off to the side. Um, so, so you come home after having made life and death decisions, okay? That, that's what you do. And they're life and death decisions that are going to be made in one one hundredth of a, of a second that are going to be questioned potentially for the next five years. Okay. So now you come home and your wife wants to know 
where you want to go for dinner. Trust me, they don't give a shit. Absolutely. Do not give a shit. It's like, just make a decision, honey. Wherever you go is fine. Well, do you want fish? Do you want burgers? We had spaghetti the other night. It's like, I don't give a shit. Just pick. And they don't, and it's not because they're not loving and kind and and whatever. It's just they have been operating at DEFCON 3, knowing that they have to go to DEFCON 1. And now we want them back down to DEFCON 5. And that's just, that takes a little while. Or they come home and the kids need this and the kids need that. And they've literally been giving all day. And it's not just because you can have officers that haven't gotten a call. It is truly living in that hypervigilant state of of waiting for the call to come in because you never know what's coming in. You know, they're not firefighters. They're not sitting in, in a firehouse waiting for that call. Their windows are typically cracked, even if you're in Minnesota in December. Because they're also listening to hear if somebody's calling for help, if something's going on. They're using every sense that they have. That is being tasked eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day. That is exhausting. So if you don't get a single call, but you have put your body through that level of hyper-focus, you're exhausted. You still don't want to make a decision. Now the kids need, the wife is going, you know, there's all this stuff. So being able to come home and being able to have that 30 minutes or whatever it is with a spouse that you guys discuss, that says, hey, if I can get this, there's a chance that the wife or, or whoever is at home can't give you 30 minutes because they're running out to their own job. Not uncommon that they are co-parenting because nobody wants somebody else taking care of the kids. So they're figuring out how to do this overlap and not get it. So, you know, for for officers, it's being able to understand what's going on, being able to figure out how they can best meet their needs, how they can articulate with a spouse, particularly after a difficult day, that I'm going to need 15 minutes, I'm going to need 30 minutes. Um, You know, can you give that to me? and kind of negotiate if need be. Um, And spouses to be able to understand what it's like to have to make those decisions constantly. And going out to dinner with an officer, you know, looks like this. Am I gonna run into anybody that I've arrested? I'm going to need to sit with my back, you know, with my back against a wall and I'm going to have to have a seat where I can watch the front door because if something happens, I need to take action. And while I'm doing this, I need to listen to my wife and my kids. I need to be socially engaged. I need to be able to relax. I need to order dinner. And then I need to go home and rest so I can do this again. So sometimes going out to dinner is not quite as enjoyable for them, but it's really kind of understanding, you know, what what goes on on a deeper level for them. I love that. And I appreciate that. Um, Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to wrap up? Um, I don't, I really just want to um, to drive home the point, particularly with, with people that have been suicidal, that I really want, um, I want those individuals, I want to thank them for, for, for not having completed suicide. That's the first thing I want to do. I want to thank them for having the strength to stay here and to fight the fight. But then I want to task them with going to a different level. I want to task them with thinking about those those potential repetitive head impacts that they might have had about their childhood, about understanding that the brain has been keeping score since the day you came out. That could this be, could your struggle actually be part of a neurological issue because so often people that have thought about suicide or attempted suicide have felt like failures, have felt like there's something horribly wrong with me. And they can't pinpoint it because some of them haven't had a whole lot of trauma in their life. And they're like, why can't I just enjoy things? 
I task everybody with now looking back and, and counting and getting an evaluation. Go on the Concussion Legacy Foundation website where they have this helpline that you fill out your information and they can find you neurologists or appropriate individuals that can evaluate you because there's not something wrong with you. There could be something wrong with a system inside of you that, that we can work through and help you have a more fulfilled life, particularly when we know that the overlap of head injury is depression, anxiety, mood dysregulation, all of these pieces that we see that are part of the struggles that we see in, in people that die by suicide or attempt suicide. I love it. And what's the number to the cop line? So cop line for officers and their families, that's who it's, it's available to, is 1-800-COP-LINE, which is 267-5463. So for any officer or their family members, um, either retired or active, please you know feel free to call. And I will tell you that that um, that we are also that our volunteers have been trained to ask questions about those head injuries and impacts, and be able to help them get the resources. And we typically go through the Concussion Legacy Foundation to help also get those resources, not just the culturally competent therapists, which we have a very voluminous list of of them, but also those individuals that understand the neurological components as well. And we'll add that number to the other numbers listed in all the show notes. And last question, Stephanie, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Next 24 hours? Yes. Um, going out to dinner tomorrow night um, to celebrate my father-in-law's birthday and mine. So I'm looking forward to... Uh, to doing that. And what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours, Leo? Uh, going on a walk with my rucksack. I, I'm, I'm reading this book by Dr. Peter Atia called Outlive. It's a, it's a new book. And he talks about walking with a rucksack. And I, I realized I haven't done that in a while. So I just, I loaded it up right before I put the weights in right before this. And then uh, I'm going to do that right after. So I'm looking forward to that. Love it. Love it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for calling the 988 or any of the other 800 numbers that are listed in the show notes. And now the new cop line number that we're going to add to the show notes. Also, uh, you can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Stephanie.